This podcast contains information, theories, and speculation based on the A Song of Ice and Fire books by George R.R. R. Martin. It can and will spoil future episodes of the HBO television series Game of Thrones. This is your one and only spoiler warning. If you're looking for our non-spoiler podcast on Game of Thrones, please look at our feed archive for Sunday night and Tuesday afternoon releases or visit baldmove.com for our entire catalog. Hey everybody, welcome back to the spoiler edition of the Game of Thrones podcast brought to you by Bald Move. You can find all of our content at baldmove.com. Of course, this is for episode 504, Sons of Harpies. Man, I, as a book reader, it really pained me to see Sir Barristan Selmy go out like that. I think it, it was a fairly fitting end to... Is such a great character is fairly badass. Uh, you know, he had to die with his boots on. But on the other hand, if you compare it to his death in the books with Kraz and, you know, the the whole line, uh, you know, then comes at Barristan Selmy or Barristan the Bold and, and, and Kraz came. I mean, it's a little homoerotic, uh, but it really it is a crowning moment of badass for the character. And I just wonder why they killed him off at this point instead of saving that slightly more awesome, slightly more epic moment for, for later and, and how they're going to change, you know, the intrigue between his Dar and Dario and the shave pate and the sons of harpies and Barristan being caught in the middle, the middle and then Danny taking off on Drogon and, and him left behind to try to serve best his interests or her interest rather. Um, you know, Martin's razor and all, and that's a very complicated, you know, the whole Miranese knot is a whole complicated thing and it can definitely be reduced in complexity and, and still have most of the themes. I just, you know, again, wish we could have had that last moment with him. Now I know we left it in the main cast that he, maybe he's dead, maybe he's not. I think they left it like that ambiguous on a television show, but since this is the spoiler section, uh, I did see an interview with the actor who plays Selmy, uh, Ian McElhenney, and he seemed to indicate that that was his final scene, uh, that he's not coming back, and that he himself, as a, as a fan of the books and who's read it, thought he was safe, because uh, as we all know, he's still alive and kicking in the books. So, kind of a bummer. Uh, I'm wondering if they will give that... Uh, later scene that we talked about. I wanted to give that to Dario or somebody else, or maybe Grey Worm uh, as some kind of a vengeance for him. I don't know, but uh, I, I was sad, sad to see him, sad to see him go and shocked. And if they end up killing Grey Worm too, then wow, that's just going to be uh, pretty impressive. But I, I could see it working as a way to show how alone Danny is. And again, um, it's kind of sweeped away for Jorah and Tyrion Although, again, it could just be that uh, it just shows her without all of her traditional support, the people that she's leaned on to protect her and advise her uh, and kind of derive some of her moral authority from. Eliminating those is interesting to make her feel really alone and isolated. We also talked in the main cast about the uh, possibility of Arya killing uh, Sir Meryn Trance, which would explain his prominence in her prayers earlier this season. Uh, of course, we know in the books, Arya kills Darian, the deserter from the Night's Watch. Now, what I forgot is that as a direct result of that, of her kind of flying solo and being Arya Stark, she's given the the milk of blindness uh, by the acolytes at the House of Black and White. I thought we were beyond that in her uh, story arc, but there a lot of people reminded me that, no, the blindness comes later. So I'm kind of excited to see that. I think that'll be really cool. Marin Trant is a shit. So that'll be entertaining. Uh, the other comment I want to touch in before we get to the feedback, and we got a lot of it and a pretty healthy spoiler segment at the end, is that there are some people disappointed 
Got a lot of emails of people disappointed that Jim didn't take the bait on the R plus L equals J hints that the show's laying down and the hints that I kind of gave him. And I can sense your frustration because I kind of wish we could run with that. I think now the show, you know, and there's a lot of people skeptical about whether this this emailer is legit. I mean, I I don't know. Uh, you can never be sure. I do have a few things that I look for in emails as far as phrases and wording and spelling and things of that nature to try to weed out the people that are being disingenuous. But I thought after this week, the show itself had dropped enough hints if, uh, if a show watcher was observant to start to have this theory. Um, and to suppress it, even if this was a plant, to suppress the discussion, I thought, would be just as artificial as letting someone kind of maybe too on the nose draw the connections there. But those connections were there to be made. It's not – none of these theories that were – that we considered, you have to have book knowledge to make them, to make them work. Having said that, if you do have book knowledge, they're super obvious, and I think a lot of people are disappointed that Jim doesn't jump on that. And I think there's another thing, another angle – to consider, which is I think Jim is a little um, intimidated by how steeped in the lore I am. Uh, and sometimes when I ask him a question that's um, just a, a surface question, I think he thinks I'm trying to dig at something deeper and he shies away because he doesn't want to sound like an idiot or, you know, say something that would be foolish uh, from a book reader's perspective. So, you know, again, I... I'm in a I'm in a position where I, I I have to play a light touch. I I, I bring these things up, um, and he either takes them and runs with them, which he sometimes does, or sometimes they fall flat. And I much prefer that. I've listened to other Game of Thrones podcasts where they have a book reader and a show watcher dynamic. And again, the whole time I feel like the the book readers are just setting up the. Uh, the the show watchers and prompting them and 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 elbowing them and like huh huh until the show watcher starts basically reciting what the book reader wants them to say and that's not fun for anybody and the other thing is I like to throw in just enough counterpoints and a lot of theories that don't go anywhere that you know I kind of pride myself in and not telegraphing the big moments so if a show watcher is listening and, and like Aaron's like suddenly becomes the prosecutor and he's badgering the witness and he's leading them oh this must be something significant whereas if I just offer it out there and sometimes it lands sometimes it doesn't you can't tell the difference between uh me guiding it as a book reader and uh you know lucky guesses as a as a show watcher and and that's the way I like to keep it because I think that's the only way to truly be spoiled or free is to you know make it as blind as possible from my delivery and that was the whole you know the joke with the mild mildly interesting is that you know I come up with a neutral response that I can use no matter what the other co-host says and as long as I keep it that the same I mean people can say well I can tell in the tone of voice or I can do this or do that and I sometimes play games with that too so that's one of the things I I do that's fun and interesting for me in the podcast Sometimes it doesn't work and it's not as interesting from a book reader's perspective or a book reader would want them to go a little bit further. But, you know, that's what this this segment's for. So just wanted to get that out as well. Let's get on to the feedback. Matthew Y says, since we've gotten foreshadowing of Cersei's walk of shame and the assault of the High Septon, I'm wondering if the seizing of Loras for being a famed sword swallower is more telegraphing for what's to come with both Marjorie and Cersei. Perhaps since uh, ten, Tana, I believe as I pronounce it, Tana Merriweather was never cast and Marjorie as a virgin had been taken out of the equation, what is the possibility that Marjorie attempts to seduce Cersei and the Queen Mother uses these advances and or a uh, night of deviant pleasure against her, possibly feeling that any wrongdoing in the Faith Militant's eyes would be overlooked because of her position of being their benefactor? As Tyrion once said, Cersei was raised to value money too highly. I know there is a possibly low chance of this happening because of the scene of Lancel mentioning the boar and their incestuous summer fling. All of that basically shouting at us that Lancel will probably be Cersei's downfall. But that wouldn't implicate Marjorie in any way. And while both women are aware of being opponents, neither knows to what degree the other is invested in this little war. So what do you think, Sarah? Marjorie is free and loose with sexuality and Cersei preaches at the militant church of the Vag. Are we getting a Tyrell swamp scene this season in lieu of a Mirish swamp? 
Either way, poor Tommen loses again. Uh, Matt, I, it's not bad. I don't think... I think the problem is I don't think that Marjorie is dumb enough to try to seduce Cersei and think that would be successful. And that would just come off as really desperate on, on her character's part, and I don't buy that. Uh, and even Cersei is not dumb enough to let that happen uh, and kind of sell it like Marjorie's getting one over on her. What I think is going to happen is that now the the High Septon has a Staith militant. He'll use Lancel's confessions, which... I, I believe they heavily implied that Lancel's come clean about everything and is seeking forgiveness from the Seven. So I think the High Septon already knows a lot about Cersei's misdeeds. It's just that he wasn't in a position that he could just seize her. Well, now she's given him an army, and now that that army has made her uh, the Kingsguard back down publicly, you know, there's one of those little pet theories I threw out that I don't really believe in. The High Septon maybe is co-opted by his own army and that he's some benevolent guy and they're some, you know, they've subverted him. I don't think that's true. I just think that his hands were tied and he was appearing to be this pious kind of bumpkin type character just so he can rope Cersei in for his, his ultimate ends. So... I think that he'll use Lancel's confessions, as you say, uh, to take Cersei into custody. I think it's more likely. I just don't know how far it's going to go. It could be, you know, it's it's just bad enough, the incest thing with her cousin. Uh, it could be that they make this connection to her children and Jamie. Uh, that would actually be a threat to King Tommen, which might be enough for Tommen to call his Uncle Kevin off the bench at Castle Rock which would give us a nice beat in the final episode. You know, uh, that would probably all happen in, in the end of episode nine, episode 10. Uh, Kevin comes riding into King's Landing. It's been in chaos this entire season. It's been rocked by scandal after scandal. He rides in heroically to right the ship just in time for Varys to put a crossbow bolt in him. And I think that would be a pretty sweet way to end the season. Then again, last year, I thought Lady Stoneheart would be a pretty sweet way to end season four. So what the hell do I know? Moving on to Mike R. said, after listening to the latest spoiler cast, I wanted to write in against the Howland Reed as the High Septon or High Sparrow theory. It's a fun tinfoil, but I hope it's not true because I think it's essential to the story of the reborn faith militant that it's spontaneous, a grassroots movement of, by, and for the common folk. They've been trampled upon by the nobility for ages, and now they're finally becoming radicalized and they're fighting back. If it turns out that the whole movement was masterminded by some highborn lord making his own play in the Game of Thrones, that story would be completely undermined, in my view. I don't think GRRM would do that, or GERM, as I like to call him, so that the High Sparrow is just who he appears to be, a nobody, which is the whole point. Uh, well, that is a fair point, but I don't know if I agree with you that I think it would ruin the whole story, because, again, what's the larger point? Is Gurm making a point that radical calls like the French Revolution or the Bolshevik Revolution are a good thing? I think it's just as arguable to say that these popular uprisings of the lower classes eventually being co-opted by powerful, charismatic leaders uh, can be just as horrific as a brutal dictatorship. Uh, you know, these leaderless movements run amok and harnessed by ambitious men uh, or ambitious women, for that matter, can be just as bad as a King Joffrey. And I think that's an important point to make, and I think it's consistent with the world that Gurm is kind of laying out here for us. Uh, it would be kind of odd if this powerful, charismatic leader would be a hero. Like, if he was Howland Reed and he's doing all these manipulations for the greater good, that would be interesting rather than having him be like a Hitler or a Stalin clone. Uh, and I could see that being interesting, but, you know... There is a not insubstantial amount of evidence or a lot of logical flaws with Howland Reed being the High Sparrow. I'm not disputing that. I just really like the theory. Moving on, Hunter E. Dub says, What do you think about Melisandre's intention uh, is for hooking up with Jon? She obviously knows he's royalty and that his blood is powerful and that she mentions something about a shadow. Is she trying to make another shadow murder baby? If so, who is the target? Is she over Stannis and wants to shift her powers to Jon? And she plans to murder him the same way she, he murdered Rinley. I can't think of anyone else in the North that she'd want to take out. The show has spent a lot of time with Shireen, but why would she get to kill her? Surely not Davos or the Black Brothers. We can only hope that Stannis' wife will get got, but that truly makes no sense in terms of the plot. Do Shadow Babies have other specific sets of skills that don't involve murder? 
Those are all very good questions, and I don't have great answers for you, but I'm going to give it the old college try. I think having a shadow assassinate Stannis would work well in the context of a freshly resurrected Jon Snow. If Stannis is alone in the time of assassination, which doesn't seem to be, you know, other than Brienne and Catelyn, Stannis almost pulled that off in the original Rinley hit. Uh, there would be no one around to see a shadow or whatnot. And then who would fill the leadership vacuum there? Would it be some kind of done deal uh, to have John arise from the dead, newly freed from his vows as a black brother, rise up as a unified leader of the wildlings of the North and the remnants of Stannis army? Would Stannis's Lords go along with that? Would Davos go along with that? Would it even matter? Uh, another possibility is it could be that Melisandre just needs to have sex with John and can store that power. It's not like you have sex six hours later, you have a shadow baby. Maybe she can control the timing of the release of this offspring, or she can accelerate it or delay it as it suits her purpose. Again, don't know. This is one of Jim's complaints of magic. It could be anything they want it to be. But it could be like, you know, once she gets her, his seat up inside her, that's like a round of ammo that she's got in her clip and she can expend it at a later point. And she's essentially perhaps trying to stockpile these weapons of the royal blood and royal seed so she can use them at a later date. Honestly, I don't think we enough, know enough about her purposes or her powers to know one way or another, nor do we know what happens next at the Wall or Winterfall. I mean, that's one of the burning questions of the winds of winter. What happens to John? What's the real story behind the pink letter? What really happens at the wall after the coup? And, and it'll be interesting to see if we get any answers at the end of this season or whether essentially they're going to find a way to stall enough that, that this season is going to end right as dance and feast ends. Gerard M. said, in your instant cast, either you or Jim mentioned something about Littlefinger being in hot water with the High Sparrow when he gets to King's Landing. In support of this, I offer the following. One, do you have a count of how many times Oliver has shouted, this establishment is owned by Lord Peter Baelish so far this season? And two, Baelish has promised Sansa that he would be back, and we know how well that goes in this series, let alone who it is that's making that promise. Put a pin in that, uh, Gerard, because Aelin C., I believe is how you pronounce her name, has a couple things to say about this as well. She says, or perhaps he, I'm, I'm not familiar with the name, I've read some speculation that the reason Cersei summons Littlefinger has to do with Loras or Oliver, since Oliver works for Littlefinger. I really like that speculation, but what I'm wondering is if Littlefinger will have something to do with Cersei being imprisoned by the Sparrows. In the books, it was one of the Kettleblacks who confessed to fornicating with the Queen, and I assumed in the show it would be Lancel who spills the beans. But with how far gone Lancel is at the moment, why hasn't he already said something? Or if he has confessed, what is the Faith Militant waiting for? I'm thinking back to season one conversation that Littlefinger and Cersei have about knowledge is power versus power is power and wondering if the show will circle back to that idea. We touched on a little bit of this before. I think these are all excellent points. It could be that Littlefinger must confess some crimes to uh, himself, and I could see him spinning these in such a way that it lands with Cersei being in maximum trouble. I mean, Littlefinger knows a lot about her dirty little secrets after all. Uh, particularly her dirtiest secret, which is King Tommen sitting on the throne, is a bastard born of incest. He could say that's the reason Ned is beheaded, to cover that secret up, and that the faithful are already pissed about them killing Ned because it profaned the great sept of Baelor. And, you know, he could say, oh, it was all Cersei, and she blackmailed me, and she threatened me with death, and, and maybe he could get off with clemency and then land her in a lot of hot water. You know, they're they're setting up that whole abomination and incest thing with the crowd. So that's got to go somewhere. Uh, that would be kind of satisfying because by recalling Littlefinger back to King's Landing, it would be Cersei kind of sealing her doom. And that's one of the themes in the book that I'm kind of worried doesn't play out in the show because they've made Cersei be a little bit more rational, a little bit more clever in her plans. I don't want to miss the fact that she is essentially through her own paranoia and her own pride, putting the noose around her very own neck. So, uh, Aelin C continues with some other points. Is it safe to assume that Sansa is not only taking the role of Jean Poole, but also Wyman Manderly as well? If that's the case, I'll really miss the Manderly Frey plot, pie plot, as I absolutely loved it in the books. But depending on how this is Sansa and Winterfell plot plays out, I'm fairly excited about this remix. 
I'm not sure if you missed it, but I think there's still a strong possibility of the great John Umber fulfilling the role of Lord Manderley, uh, adding to the Winterfell clusterfuck that's currently shaping up. So I talked a little bit about that in the last show, and I think that's a strong possibility. If not, it could totally be an Oxen's Razor situation where, yes, the Frey pie is pretty cool and all that, but it just gets omitted for a streamlining. And I still think with Brienne, with Sansa... Uh, with all the with with Stannis marching, you've got enough converging on Winterfell that you do not need Lord Too Fat to sit a horse to come there and bake Frey pies. And they might just save the whole Frey revenge because you know a lot of people are talking about Red Wedding 2.0, et cetera, et cetera. We haven't got there in the books either. So assuming that stuff all takes place in the winds of winter, I could see them punting the whole Frey situation uh, to a further season. Dealing the Boltons in this season, leaving it to kind of a mystery, kind of ending on a pink letter type of note for this season, and then kind of dealing with all the the Stark family business in the next season. But setting all that up. Speaking of the phrase, she continues, I'm starting he slash she. Uh, I'm starting to think that wherever Walter Frey's fate might be in the books, and I'm banking on him getting slaughtered at the Red Wedding 2.0, in the show it's going to be Arya that kills him. Unless, of course, the show just added his name to the list because it's gotten so super short. But with Lady Stoneheart 99% sure, for sure out, I'm going with Arya. And indeed, the only problem I have with this is, theory is that why would the Faceless Men send Arya to do that task? Or do we think that as soon as she completes her training, she's going to betray the Faceless Men and go rogue? How would that even work? I mean, I think you'd have some kind of Jason Bourne type situation where all the best killers in the world... Uh, in this case, with magically enhanced super spy powers, we'll be hunting down a teenage girl who just recently became uh, a trainee of theirs. I can buy Arya can be a talented killer and be on par with any one faceless man, but could she stand against them all? I mean, is her warging going to be enough of a talent to allow her to be safe from the faceless men coming gunning for her? There has to be a reason that they would send her in my mind, and I hope it's not just for fan service. I hope that there's an elegant reason um, that Martin connects Saria's water dancing training with her experience with the Jacken on the way to the wall, with her experiences at the Hall, with her experiences at the House of Black and White. They they connect all this and and allow her to have a chance to get revenge of her enemies that's somehow sanctioned by the House of Black and White, by the Faceless Men, and that somehow this is all going to tie together. I really hope that's the case, but I just don't I don't have enough of the plot to, to see where that's going as of yet. It's not a problem with your theory, of course. It's just that there's not an obvious link to say, yes, that's a cool thing. How do we get from where we're at now to this cool thing happening? That's That's where... Um, it kind of breaks down for me. Moving on, Luke G said, with the Faith Militant's knowledge of Tommen being a bastard, they could potentially wage war against the Crown. I feel like the show could be setting this up by shipping both Marin Trant and Jamie, our two most notable Kingsguard, out of King's Landing, as well by having Canavan Lannister, the Crown's master of war, leaving the capital. I could definitely see a naive Tommen being unprepared for a sudden attack from the Faith Militant's mob and getting taken prisoner. What if an already shamed Cersei, hearing of her son's fate, mentally breaks her into doing the walk of shame? If Tommen getting seized by the Faceless Men happens, this also opens up the door for Robert Strong, a.k.a. The Mountain, a.k.a. Westeros' version of Bane from Batman, to fight for Tommen rather than Cersei in a trial by combat. If this theory is true, it could certainly spice up the other storylines going on as well. If Tommen were to die, the crown would pass to either Marcella or Stannis by law, correct? I'm not sure how that would work in the six main kingdoms, but in Dorne, they would surely crown Marcella and proclaim her as the lawful heir. This is assuming Marge isn't already pregnant with Sir Tommen Pounds Jr., which is also an interesting possibility, as the show has hinted at this three to four times already. If Dorne crowns Marcella, that definitely brings <laughs> three to four times. You're talking about Tommen's record there, you sly dog. If Doran crowns Marcella, it definitely brings a new, interesting importance to both Stannis and Jamie's storyline. I think the showrunners definitely have it ending to kill off sweet, sweet Tommen. For sure. I agree that they have it in them, Luke. I think, though, my problem with this theory, uh, and I'm the crumpler of foil this week, apparently, because I'm just, 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 I feel like I'm shitting on everybody's. But if you kill Tommen, it seems like it's too neatly resolving 
the crown to either Marcella or Stannis, which would make either Dorne or Stannis's or both's positions much stronger and leave the Lannisters relatively so much weaker as to almost be irrelevant. I mean, the Lannisters would just simply be done. And I feel like in the case of Dance with Dragons and the appearance of Robert the Strong, uh, all that at the end implies that with even with the death of Kevin, Cersei is just now getting started. So... This kind of thing is like using the Hubble telescope. I was watching a documentary on a Hubble when I was doing this note, so it's stuck in my mind. It's like using the Hubble to see the very edge of the known universe. It's great that you can see it, but it's hard to use that information and then say definitively what's what's even further than that. I don't know. I've only seen this far. You're talking about guessing what Cersei and Prince Dorne are going to do at the end of Dance of Dragons, and that's where I feel like we're moving from analyzing the books for clues for the series and vice versa, analyzing the series for clues for the books, and we're just making stuff up. We need more book or more show, you know, specifically the six more episodes before we can start definitively saying, aha, I think I know where it's going to go for the next season, and that's definitely going to be something fun to do in the wrap-up cast, but... Right now, I feel like you have to be careful not to suggest a theory which would tip the balance of power too far in any one direction for with, with all the players left on the board. Uh, or you're just guessing which way you think the power is going to tip, which is interesting. But again, you're as likely to be wrong as you are to be right. Moving on to John Sand says, I think the waif might be one of the sand snakes instead of Sorella and Aurelis or Alaris slash the Sphinx. Training to be a maester, the waif is Sorella training to be a faceless woman. In the books, Lady Nim is the fair sand snake, while Sorella is the summer islander. But the D double Ds might have made Sorella the fair sand snake to throw book readers off the scent. This explains why the show's waif has been portrayed very differently from the waif in the book. If you read Keisha Castle Hughes' interview, and she's the one who plays the spear-wielding Obera Sand, in a recent Variety interview, when answering a question, she's quoted as saying... She wields the same weapon as her father, and she's the most like him in the sense that she has no other aspirations. Some of her other sisters have aspirations to become politicians or to become septas or to become faceless women. So perhaps parts of the Old Town plot from the books have been moved to Bravos. Jacken has already been moved from Bravos to Old Town, and John might send Sam to Bravos to negotiate the Iron Bank to purchase supplies for the Night's Watch. John could mortgage the gift to secure the loan from there. Uh, moving key elements of the Old Town plot, the Bravos would fit into how D the Double Ds like to condense book plots into the TV show. Just some thoughts that popped into my head after reading the Castle Hughes interview. I like this, and it's a very Martin's Razor kind of situation. Uh, but on the other hand, we don't know enough about what Sorella's doing in Old Town yet to know one way or another how this could be a condensing of the plot. This is another kind of Hubble telescope type of situation. But certainly there's enough mystery around Sorella and the Wave to do some identity remixing. And also, why would John send him to negotiate for... I mean, I yeah, I guess he does do that in the the, the books. He does deal with the uh, Iron Bankers to, to get money for, uh, you know, to prepare the Black Brothers for the winter. And I guess Sam could do that. But with I, I, it seems like they're laying tracks with Mas, Maester Aemon being old and sick and dying. They're going to need a new Maester, and Sam's going to need training. I'm assuming that there is a point to all this stuff in the books, and it's something about you know the faceless men trying to get a handle on dragons or magic or something. Uh, so I don't know. Again, I don't know enough to know where they're going and which is better for sure. Uh, but it's something to keep an eye on as we move forward. Tom says, I have another two linked crazy theories that you may or may not have come across, and I'd like to hear your thoughts. They're both concerning Ned Stark. I was sparked into thinking more about him after hearing an interview where Sean Bean said, I can come back now, as everyone knows I'm not John's dad. We also know that Bran is a warg. John, Rickon, and Arya all have warg dreams, and as the Starks are descended from the first men, they can warg. So, did Ned warg into something a split second before meeting his maker, the Hound, one of the dire wolves, a dragon? The second theory builds on another. If we assume that Arya's dancing ma master is a faceless man, and per in particular, Jacken, we know Ned's arranged Arya's lessons, so does this mean that Ned knows that the faceless man, or possibly is a faceless man? It's a bit more on the crazy side of these theories, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. 
I don't think Ned is coming back. I don't think he's a faceless man. I mean, I'm all for crazy tinfoil theories, um, but I like to separate, like, you know, Bolton is a vampire. Bruce Bolton's a vampire. I like that theory. I think it's cool. There's a lot of text to support it. Ultimately, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not, because if it turns out that he just gets defeated and, you know, he becomes a minor point of the whole Song of Ice and Fire, I can still say, hey, I think he's a vampire, because it doesn't matter to the plot, or it could be that it matters big time, you know? It's one of those things where it's not really a falsifiable theory. This one, though, seems like it's pretty falsifiable, and there's a lot of problems with it. We know way too much about Ned's history and his whereabouts basically his entire life. I mean, we know uh, that he was shipped off to the Vale, and he was raised by Robert Aaron. We, he then fought in a civil war for the Iron uh, Throne to give to his buddy Robert. He then got married to Catelyn Stark. He had children. He was the Lord Paramount of the North and Warden of the North. That is not consistent with what you would say about a faceless man. Uh, he's either the deepest sleeper agent in the history of Westeros or a faceless man killed him at some point in his life and replaced him so accurately that neither his best friend, Robert, his adoptive father, John Aaron, his wife or children in later years, none of them could tell the difference. And that stretches my definition of what the faceless men are capable of. As far as warging, my impression is that this is a latent start gift that hasn't manifested in a long time. It's somehow connected with the direwolf pups. So I doubt that Ned warged. Uh, we are privy in the books and the series and to a lot of his thoughts and his dreams uh, and his point of view. There's not a lot of room for a lot of mystery there, in my opinion. So I don't, again, I don't want to be rumpler of tinfoil here, but that's what my gut tells me. Moving on to Pete from House Goat. In the build-up to Season 5 in the UK, we had a Game of Thrones Greatest Moments countdown. This did what it said on the tin with commentary from celebrity fans and some of the crew and cast accompanying the scene selected. The reason I write this is because one of the commentators was none other than Michelle Fairley, the actress who played Cat Stark. It was clearly recorded post-Season 3 as many of the moments came from Season 4. From memory, I don't think any other long-dead characters were used, in fact. It looks like it had been recorded simultaneously to Season... Uh, five, as a lot of the cast were in their costumes. Do you think this makes it more likely that Stoneheart will make an appearance at the end of season five, or am I just being naively optimistic? I think I even imagined a faded, faded makeup line around her neck, which could have been a scar. See picture attached of the photo I took at the TV at this point. So, I looked at your photo here, and I think it's inconclusive, Pete. It looks like it could just be wrinkles on Michelle's neck, because that's what necks do when you start hitting your 50s. Gravity is a bitch. If you compare that photo to other press photos of her from various different events, you'll see that she has those kind of same lines in all of them, because uh, that's just uh, that's that's just what her neck's doing. Uh, as we discussed in previous weeks, you know Martin's razor, which is my version of saying the law of character economy is is strong with this show. Uh, Martin's Razor suggests that all denials by the Double Ds and Michelle herself are legit and that Lady Stoneheart's character and motivations, if they're carried on at all, which I assume they are because I feel like it's pretty damn important what happens between Brienne and Jamie, that they're going to be carried on by Sansa or Brienne. And it's been an odd voyage for me because if you know, if you listened to me last year in the wrap-up cast, I was one of the foremost leaders in that there's no way they can get away with doing away with Lady Stoneheart. But now, when I see how the Double Ds have really skillfully reshuffled the deck so far in this season with Jamie and Brienne and Sansa, I feel like I've just let all that go. Not only do I think the Sansa or Brienne could lead the Brotherhood for Stark Vengeance as well as Lady Stoneheart, I actually think they could do it better and in a more satisfying way. I mean... Yes, it would be very creepy to see Michelle Fairley in zombie makeup and, you know, hissing out all of her commands and orders. But imagine what Sophie Turner or Gwendolyn Christie can do in a scene where Sansa is ordering Brienne to prove her loyalty by killing Jamie Lannister. I think that would be incredible. And that is the, again, the most thing that most, most makes sense in my mind. So... Hate hate to be the bearer of bad news. I just I moved on from Lady Stoneheart. I would be pleasantly surprised if they bring her back at this point. Robbie, seeing Tyrion's face when the dragons are flying over the city in the uh, coming scenes, 
I thought about his previous interest in dragons and wildfire. I'm not sure I recall the reference of these previous scenes. I know there's a scene of dragons flying over King's Landing, uh, but I, I'm I'm not seeing that in connection with Tyrion's face. But regardless, I don't think it's important for the rest of the email. Then I remember he gave a design of a saddle to Bran early on. What do you think about the possibility of him training dragons for Danny, or maybe designing a saddle for Dan- saddle for Danny to ride the dragons? I think there's a DreamWorks movie in 3D in two installments that lays out this whole plot point. Anyway, maybe he could ride a dragon being of smaller stature. So we talked a little bit about Tyrion being a secret Targaryen last year in the Danny deep dive prophecy tinfoil section. And by the way, if you want to hear that, I have a link to all of this tinfoil archives in the show notes for each of these spoiler podcasts. So if you click on uh, the show notes, which are on baldmove.com, or they're probably in the show description of your podcast player that you're listening to this on right now presumably there's a link to the archive and it's got a link to the podcast and the time code for where this tinfoil for that week starts so you can quickly find it anyway uh i'm not sure if i mentioned his saddle design as a mark in the theory's favor of him being a secret targaryen and thus being one of the three heads of the dragon but you're absolutely right i think it's going to be some combination of magic dragon horns Tyrion's saddle-making know-how, Bran's warging, they're going to end up coming together and combining to help Danny and the other of the heads of the dragon, whoever they may be, master their mounts. Uh, I'm going to butcher your name, I apologize, but I believe it's Oisanau. Um, she begins, or he begins, again, I, I'm not familiar with the name, so set me straight if you if you would. Says the Nightwatch meeting will still happen and it'll be led by Sir Alistair Thorne and Ollie betraying John as well. Uh, Martin's razor would seem to indicate that yes, with all this emphasis on Ollie and his relationship with John and his bitterness and his hatred towards the wildlings, that would really pay that off. And I mean, they've cast Bow- Bowen Marsh and he's been mentioned a time or two and he's been in the background several times. But no show watcher gives a shit about Marsh the way they do about Thorn and Ollie. Hell, I didn't even know that was true until I started digging uh, for on IMDb and some of the uh, the the Game of Thrones wikis that yes, they have actually cast a Bowen Marsh. So I think watching old Thorn pour poison into Ollie's ear and use his anger against John Wildlings and use that against John would be very entertaining in a way that Game of Thrones is often entertaining. Watching b- bad people do despicable things, relatively innocent people, and manipulate them. Uh, she continues the prostitute marine that seems to have a hard on for killing the unsullied will turn out to be the Green Grace. This is the dried whores who I refer to her as. Turns out to be the Green Grace and the leader of the Sons of the Harpy. I actually think it's a little too obvious given the fact that we only see her wearing green clothing and she keeps sending Danny's troop to her deaths. We're also probably going to have the show called so- Shocking Reveal that Hisdar Zolorak uh, is in cahoots with the Green Grace to bring Danny down. I actually don't know enough about the Green Grace to comment much on this, but I'm actually a fan of the whole shave pate being the one behind the attempted Danny poisoning of the cicadas or the locusts or whatever the hell she's eating and all the other machinations against her at the end of dance. I highly recommend Googling for the essay, Untangling the Miranese Plot. And remember that Miranese is spelled with a double E uh, before, after the M and after the R. Uh, and it does an excellent job at outlining all of that and all of the Shea Pate's complicity. Uh, I might visit that actually later as a tinfoil segment, but it is a huge broad topic. It's like five 5,000 word essays. It's similar to the Grand Northern Conspiracy in scope. Uh, so even as a two-parter, that'd be tough to cover, but it's, and it's, it's all elegantly laid down in a series of essays already. I really hate when someone's done the work to kind of tie this in a bow to just kind of read and plagiarize their work. I like it better when I have to take four or five Reddit threads and then find the quotes and, you know, tie it up into a bow myself. That's kind of how I prefer to roll, but we'll see if, if the winds of winter doesn't come out next year, I might get desperate. Continuing, Littlefinger will be responsible for Kevin Lannister's death instead of Varys since he wants to cause chaos. Interesting theory. I kind of doesn't leave Varys much room to be doing anything, though. It's almost too much Martin's razor. I mean, I guess it does free Varys from having to make the trip across the narrow sea again, but, you know, what else is Varys going to be doing? If he gets, goes right to the queen, I guess, and be and, and, and is her advisor? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. 
Continuing, I believe that the scene where Bronn saves Jamie from the snake in the sands of Dorne symbolizes a future scene of Bronn saving Jamie's life from the sand snake and is most likely dying in the process. I also believe when Jamie said he wanted to die in the arms of a woman he loves, he will either die strangling Cersei to death or in the arms of Brienne, similarly to the bathtub scene in season three. Uh, this snake foreshadowing stuff is hot. It's good stuff. I like it. And the more I think of it, the more I think Bronn is going to go the way of Oakheart leaving uh, Jamie to play the role of Balin Swan. So I like all that. That's good stuff. Moving on for questions she has for me, given the fact that Melisandre seems to be living or leaving the wall with Stannis, unlike in the books, do you think the Brotherhood of that Banners will be reintroduced as a way for Thoros of Myrrh to bring back Jon Snow from the death? Nah. I mean, it's a possibility, but I think it's far more likely she'll go back to the wall then the Brotherhood makes that trek all the way up there during the start of winter, no less, because it, you know, I, I buy a small party can get back and forth from the wall in the dead of winter. I find it less likely to believe that like a band of brothers, you know, like a hundred guys can be making that trek. So that's just my gut feeling. Um, and again, like, I just, I don't know. Um, Stannis says he's not going to make the same mistake, but that doesn't mean that Melisandre won't weasel out of the commitment somehow, uh, or it doesn't mean that Stannis won't change his mind, or that events, you know, just like Melisandre changed her mind about Davos, she could turn on a dime and change her mind about this and say something about seeing seeing in the fires. She has to stay here to protect Shireen or to help Jon Snow or to do whatever, and Stannis is going to be okay. Or Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just making stuff up. So, but... That's kind of my my feelings on that. I don't like it. Um, and again, I want the Brotherhood to stay down south so they can hook up with Brian or Sansa. Um, I mean, relatively south, that is. I'm a believer like you in the notion of the High Sparrow as Hall and Reed. However, surprising wrinkle in that tinfoil theory that I've yet to see one bring up is, to put it bluntly, the age of the High Sparrow. After all, I always pictured him younger in the book due to the fact that he was supposed to be Jojen and Mira's father. However, in the show, he is as old, if not older, than Tywin Lannister. Don't get me wrong, I think Jonathan Price is an excellent actor to play the role, but isn't it hard to believe that he would have at one time been Eddard Stark's younger compatriot? For goodness sakes, if the show's High Sparrow is any good representation of the book's character, he is old enough to be Ned Stark's father in both the show and the books. Oof, that's actually a very good point. I mean... Age is a pretty variable thing in television, and this show seems to age up characters for their own convenience, but there doesn't seem to be a great reason to do so when they could have just had a guy, Sean Bean's age, play the High Sparrow if they wanted to make that connection in the future. So that is pretty strong evidence if we're, if we're using the show to influence the books that that theory is bupkis, which is, would be a shame in my opinion. Maybe not. I don't know. I feel like a lot of people have crumpled that tinfoil for me in the last two weeks. So... Might 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 be might be moving off that. Kevin H. Okay, here's a theory of mine. The Walking Dead is one of the most successful shows ever. Naturally, there comes fear of the Walking Dead. Breaking Bad has birthed Better Call Saul. So can we think a ton of written material, or can we think of a ton of written material in A Song of Ice and Fire that the Double Ds aren't going to have time to cover in Game of Thrones? Yep, and it's from A Feast of Crows. Imagine a spinoff show that takes place during the same time period as A Song of Ice and Fire, but focuses on the Iron Islands, Victorian, Eris Ocard, etc. Maybe even throw Lady Stoneheart in there for good measure. Occasionally, we'd be intersecting with major characters from A Song of Ice and Fire. What do you think? I don't know if it would be interesting as a spinoff. I mean, sure, there's lots of material there, as you mentioned, but if they don't go into it in the scope of the series, then by definition, it's not going to be vital to the main plot, and if it's not vital to the main plot, then why retell it after you've told your story? I mean, this is different than Martin going down dead ends as a way to do red herrings and kind of, you know, throw us off his trail a bit. You know, this is essentially bringing up red herrings and dead ends after you've already told your main story. Because there's no way in hell HBO spins this off until Game of Thrones is complete. I think it's just too expensive. It's too much time and money investment for them. Now... Having said that, as a lot of people have talked about, and George R. R. Martin himself has has raised the point, uh, they're a prequel series about the Duncan Egg series, the Hedge Knight series, would be very cool. 
or fleshing out previous Targaryen dynasties. Uh, I mean, like, look at the first 150 pages of A World of Ice and Fire. It's all about all these Targaryen dynasties and the schemings and the uh, rebellions and the dances with dragons and all this stuff. Um, and what about, you know, HBO used to do Tales from the Crypt, right? What if they did a Tales from Westeros and each week it's a different hour long story from these past segments or with a few two or three episode arcs to tell more complex stories or, you know, that kind of framework, I think, would be kind of interesting. And I feel like it'll be hard for HBO to turn down more Game of Thrones money because this is a runaway success for them. And there's a lot more backstory to, to, to tell. And I'm sure George Martin will be willing to sell it to him. So um, I'd also love for HBO to continue the fantasy vein, but go into different works. Like I'm currently in the middle of reading the Mistborn series, which I think would make for a fantastic adaptation. Uh, you know, again, I'm I'm very early on in the books, but so far there's nothing that's like, oh my god, that's unfilmable. Certainly nothing even on a scale of Game of Thrones, and it's got an interesting very technical and cohesive view of magic that it's, it's very well grounded and thought out and not too extravagant. Uh, I like to see them do that. But one of the reasons Game of Thrones is so good is that it's a passion project for the Double Ds. They read these books and they had in their mind's eye all these key moments and how they'd bring it to film. And it was something that was important to them. HBO would have to get someone as passionate about Duncan egg or Mistborn or whatever they're going to do, or it's going to suck. I mean, Look at the later seasons of True Blood for an example of when HBO gets stuck with an adaptation where the original creators and writers get bored, lose interest, and check out. It ain't pretty. So I'm all for more Game of Thrones, more George R.R. Martin, but you also got to be careful of what you wish for. Moving on to Juan C. says, I feel like we've all missed out on a really big hint. Master Eamon is sick. John asked Samwell where Master Eamon is, and Samwell replies that he's not feeling well. He missed John's first meeting as the Lord Commander, which proved to be an important and pivotal one. It resulted in the beheading of a high-ranking member of the Night's Watch, Jano Slint. I feel like Eamon has knowledge of what really happened at and after the tourney of Harrenhal and his nephew, Rhaegar, and possibly uh, knowledge of Bloodraven. He might also be the one who convinced Lord Commander Mormont to, ta- to make John his steward as he knew how important he was. I can see a deathbed scene for him, Tarly and John, where he drops a major hint. It might not be a blatant confirmation, but a heavy hint at the end of the season that tantalizes us all summer long. Well, Juan, if you're right, we might be getting that scene this week because the episode's entitled Kill the Boy, which, of course, is a reference to Maester Eamon's counsel to John upon becoming Lord Commander. Uh, you need to kill the boy to let the man be born, essentially, you know, swallow a bag of cement and get hard. Personally, they're really going to have to sell me on how Eamon would know that there's something special about John other than, you know, his leadership and his courage and his honor and all that stuff. All that crap. Um, Melisandre, I can believe because she's spooky, right? Howland Reed, I can believe because, of course, he was there at the Tower of Joy. Um, Bran, of course, I can believe because he's spooky, too, and he can green see the past and the future, and, and he could... Uh, somehow uh, commune with John in the future through Weirwoods or whatever. But they have to be careful with this reveal and just not half-ass it. I think we're all agreed on that. And I'll reserve judgment until I see it, if if you're right or not. But a deathbed confession is a bit too much Master Yoda, a bit too much old Ben Kenobi's ghost explaining all the backstory, a bit too much half-assed for me. Uh, because again, how would he know? What is the logical connection from him knowing that John is a secret Targaryen? I don't know. Maybe someone's got the answer, and I'll change my mind on a future installment of Spoiler Cast. Okay, for this week's tinfoil theory, we got something a little bit different. Uh, I started this segment. I was going to do a roundup of some of the sillier theories, um, a lot of the the identity switching theories, and if you ever hear me get into Benjen Stark equals Dario. Um, you'll know I'm scraping the bottom of the tinfoil theory barrel. But I got all that stuff researched. I got a couple more. And then I got this Dario equals Euron Greyjoy. And I started digging into it. And I started seeing that there's a lot of meat on these bones. And in the end, I came in thinking this is going to be a joke. It's going to be a lighter thing. Uh, I ended up being totally swayed. And I, I blew this segment out into a standalone. So 
Orkin considered the theory that Dario Naharis is the same person as Euron Greyjoy in disguise. Say what? This theory was popularized uh, by Nittany Lion Country and Heraclitus94 on Reddit. And it actually kind of sprang as a joke from all the other Dario is this guy, Benjen Stark is this other guy theories that were going around. It was kind of a meme at the time. And someone suggested this as a joke, but people started looking at the textual evidence and seeing that it had legs. So uh, let's dive right into it. First of all, it's considered a physical description. This is how the books choose to describe Dario. And Dario Naharis was flamboyant even for Tairoshi. His beard was cut into three prongs and dyed blue, the same color as his eyes and the curly hair that fell to his collar. Danny ran her hand down his back, tracing the line of his spine. His skin was smooth beneath her touch, almost hairless. His skin is silk and satin. Now, let's look how the books describe Euron Greyjoy. Euron was the most comely of Lord Kellan's sons, and three years of exile had not changed that. His hair was still black as a midnight sea, with never a white cap to be seen and his face was still smooth and pale beneath his neat, dark beard. A black leather patch covered Euron's left eye, but his right was blue as a summer sky. Now, notice the similarities here. They're both very beautiful. They're both very pale and smooth skin. Uh, They both have beards. Euron's described as neat. Uh, Obviously, Dario's is a little bit more flamboyant. It's it's forked, and it's, uh, it's dyed blue, but... We already have precedence in the whole Griff and Young Griff situation uh, with uh, John Connington and Aegon of having people dyeing their hair and their beards blue as a disguise. Also, Euron has blue lips, but you got to think if you had to want to disguise a prominent physical feature like that, blue beard is not a bad way to go about it. Uh, they both have blue eyes, or at least the eyes of Euron that we can see. Uh, supposedly, he's got a black crow's eye underneath that eye patch, but who knows? That could just be flair. So there are some striking physical similarities. In fact, we there's some there's some startling show evidence too, some television evidence that supports this uh, as well. One of the strongest is the mysterious casting of uh, you know recasting of Dario. Now the official story. And I'm not trying to do any conspiracy type work here. But the official story is that, uh, you know, the Euro trash looking Dario was in a new transporter film and he had a scheduling conflict. So they got this other guy. It's interesting, though. You know, Euron's not a character we've seen in the television show. We might never see him. Uh, But if you go to like one of the wikis of Ice and Fire or, you know, Westeros.org and you look at some of the fan art of of how the way people have rendered him. He looks a lot like the new Dario because the two characters are very similar as they're described in the books. Now, okay, so that's physical similarities, whatever. What else you got for me, Aaron? How about how the books describe their personality? Both Dario and Euron seem to be very boastful, larger-than-life characters. In fact, here is something. Uh, here is, is Dario bragging about himself. Nick. Of slaughter, a thing of beauty, and many a tumbler and fire dancer has wept to the gods that they might be half so quick, a quarter so graceful. I would tell you the names of all the men I have slain, but before I could finish, your dragons would grow large as castles, the walls of Yankai would crumble into yellow dust, and winter would come and go and come again. And now consider. Euron bragging about himself. Yet I have sailed farther than any of them. Only one living kraken has never known defeat. Only one has never bent his knee. Only one has sailed to Ashai by the shadow and seen wonders and terrors beyond imagining. Both men are described as dangerous. Here's what the books have to say about Dario. The Tyrosha sellsword was not a good man. No one needed to tell her that. Under the smiles and jests, he was dangerous, even cruel. And here's what the books have to say about Euron. It was dangerous to speak so to the crow's eye, even when his smiling eye was shining with amusement. 
In the books, Dario leads a mercenary group of cell swords called the Storm Crows. In the books, Euron is known as the Crow's Eye. Let's read how Euron describes himself in the books. A smile played across Euron's blue lips. I am the storm, my lord. The first storm and the last. Now, it has to be said that in the show, Dario leads the second sons. But that's not really a problem for this theory, because as a point of fact, Euron is literally the second son of Quellen Greyjoy and the younger brother of Balin. So he is a second son. Speaking of the television series, we talked about how they recast Dario to be someone more fitting the description of Dario from the books. And also, incidentally, Euron Greyjoy. But in Season 3, Episode 8, Eurotrash Dario claims to lack whores very much. He just refuses to pay for them. You might say he refuses to pay the gold price for whores, which is an important part of Ironborn culture and kind of something that comes out of nowhere. In Season 4, Episode 1, Dario makes Danny a gift of wildflowers, which he calls Harpy's Gold. He says they're beautiful but poisonous. Note Victorian's commentary on Euron from A Feast for Crows. A king must needs be open-handed. He tried to tell himself, but another voice whispered, Euron's gifts are poisoned. In the books, Euron gives a hundred ships to Victarion to uh, present to Danny as her fleet and a, as a wedding present. He arrives at Slaver's Bay with just 93 ships, having lost several to storms. In Season 4, Episode 8, Dario claims to have secured a fleet for Danny from the Miranese Navy. How many ships? 93. Now, I know I've noted this before as evidence that the Iron Islanders are being martined, razored out of the series, but until I did this research, I had no idea that the numbers of ships were exactly the same. Now, this still works as a Martin's razor, but damn. It might be easier to merge Dario and Euron in the television series because they're the same damn character. Now, if you're anything like me at this point, you are probably saying, this is all well and good. But how the hell can Dario and Euron be on opposite sides of the known world over the, sp the span of A Feast for Crows and A Dance of Dragons? Uh, Dario is stuck over in Slaver's Bay, all the way across the world, all the way on the other side of Westeros, on the Iron Islands. We've got uh, Euron going to the King's Moot, and then he's reaving in the shields, uh, Shield Islands, etc. How is this going to work out? Well... For what it's worth, it's right about here that I sat up and started taking this theory a lot more seriously. So the guys from the Boiled Leather Audio Hour, which is a very popular Game of Thrones podcast, uh, possibly better than this one, have put together a chronological listing of the Feast for Crows and Dance with Dragons episodes. And this is for, you know, because famously this has got a parallel structure. It's very similar to The Two Towers and Return of the King where one book deals exclusively with characters and situations in one part of the world, and the other part comes in and fills the gaps uh, that happen in the other part. But they're chronologically taking place at exactly the same time. So what these guys have done have torn apart the chapters and put them together into an order that you can read chronologically, which is easier to follow and kind of more engaging. So the thing is, they've done this, and guess what? Dario and Euron's chapters never overlap. In fact, there are large unexplained gaps in their story that line up perfectly to allow the one guy to be in one continent simultaneously being another guy on another continent. Let me explain. In A Dance with Dragons Chapter 3, this is the first Daenerys chapter, Dario's been sent away to try to make an alliance with the Lazarine. In the second Daenerys chapter, which is A Dance with Dragons Chapter 12, Dario is still away. In fact, Danny is starting to worry about why he's been gone for so long without word. In Daenerys Chapter 3, which is A Dance with Dragons Chapter 17, it's the last time we see Danny before we actually get to the King's Moot. She receives a letter from the Storm Crows saying that they're returning finally from Lazar, but she notes that the Storm Crows are still many days away. Now, here's an interesting coincidence. Dario was sent to Lazar with many gifts. The book says he went to the land's men with many gems and gold plate. Then Euron shows up at the king's moot with chest full of gold and treasures as a part of his plot to win over the Iron Islanders. Interesting that Dario went to Lazar with all these gifts from Danny's treasure trove. He failed in his mission to secure peace at the same time, while he is off unaccounted for, Euron is on the Iron Islands spilling out treasures full of gold and jewels and gems. 
it's an interesting coincidence, no? So next we get to the King's Moot. This is the Drowned Man chapter, which is the second Aeron chapter. Uh, it's a Feast for Crows chapter 20. Uh, Euron is present, of course, at here. And we have eight chapters until, again, the Boiled Leather audio hour tells us that uh, it's Danny's next chapter. And Daenerys, the fourth chapter, which is A Dance of Dragons 24, Dario returns to the city. At the end of the chapter, she sends the Storm Crows away again, and there's ten chapters passing with no Euron or Danny from this point. Then we get to A Feast for Crow chapter 30, which is entitled The Reaver, which is the second Victorian chapter. Euron is now at the Shield Islands, and he's, well, he's, he's reaving. And Daenerys the fifth, which is A Dance of Dragons chapter 31, I believe, Danny orders for the sellswords to be recalled to the city. She dreams of Dario dead by the road as crows quarreled over his corpse. The second sons return eight days later, but the storm crows do not return. In Daenerys chapter 6, which is a Dance of Dragons chapter 37, six chapters later, uh, Dario returns to the city, which is 17 chapters after she sent him away. So it's possible they could be the same person, but they'd have to have a ship capable of moving almost mystically fast. Fortunately, Martin has provided Euron with just that in the form of his infamous ship to silence. Because, again, that's a problem. He's got to go from, Sla- from Slaver's Bay to the Iron Islands, back to Slaver's Bay, back to the Iron Islands, back to Slaver's Bay in the course of two books. So he needs, like, the Millennium Falcon of pirate ships. Let's see what the books have to say about this. The wind was at their back, as it had been all the way down from Old Wyke. It was whispered about the fleet that Euron's wizards had much and more to do with it, that the crow's eye appeased the storm god with blood sacrifice. How else would he have dared sail so far to the west instead of following the shoreline, as was the custom? Now, it's interesting, and I actually found this out just before uh, I recorded a podcast, and I didn't have time to pull... This is one of the last-minute tidbits. I didn't have time to pull the quotes, but... There's a lot of evidence to suggest that Euron picks up four warlocks from Karth uh, in his, his his voyages across the uh, in Slaver's Bay and down in Essos. Danny also finds out from intelligence from Zarozon Duxos, who is still very much alive in the books, that Piat Pri, which is the chief of the warlocks in the House of the Undying, has gone off with three other warlocks to come treat with her. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that the, that Pyat Pri is now a slave warlock under the employ of Euron, and they're using blood magic to mystically make Euron's already fast and already infamous ship, the Silence, go even that much faster. In fact, the book notes that the Silence's deck is painted red to cover the blood, or to, to better hide the blood, rather, that's constantly covering it. So there's a lot of evidence here that he is using mystically-fueled, super-fast pirate ship that could essentially get him back and forth. Plus, he knows a way he can, assume, he can sail through the Doom of Valeria, which will cut off um, quite a bit of the trip, especially since we need him to be faster than Victarion um, to make some of these schemes go off. Now, the big question is why. Why would Euron pose as the sellsword in Essos? Now, obviously, Euron sees Danny's dragons as a key to conquering Westeros, and he's supremely confident that he will win Danny's hand in marriage. So confident that on the first read of the books, I thought he sounded like all the other Iron Islanders, which is to say he's a moronic blowhard. But if he is Dario, who has been very carefully grooming Danny to be a bloody, vengeful ruler, you know, he's always the Satan sitting on Danny's shoulder. Uh, to Barristan Selmy and to Jorah's counsel of being a wise, benevolent ruler. He's always trying to get her to go to the fire and blood. If he's manipulating Victarion to fight the Battle of Marine, to take the risk of blowing the magical dragon horde, which, by the way, is fatal to the wielder, and since he is the horn's true master, he's the one that found it, he's the one that's the king, Victarion is really just his patsy in this, if the horn is blown, the theory is that the dragons will actually be loyal to Euron, not the actual person physically blowing. This is starting to look fairly clever. Yes, it's kind of uh, dense and hard to follow, and there's a lot of moving parts, but I can see why this would appeal to someone that is as crazy as Dario or, or Euron to pull off. So you can imagine when Danny finally comes riding back on Drogon, 
Uh, he'll be riding Viserion or maybe one of the other dragons with his blue fork beard, all like, hey, girl, how you like me now? What's up? Now, again, there's a lot of cons of the theory. It's massive. It's a complicated plot that relies on all these moving parts and a heaping helping of warlock magic just to barely pull off. For another, it relies on the Stormcrows, a notoriously fickle band of sellswords with shifty loyalties, not caring that their leader, himself a notoriously fickle sellsword who has betrayed client and colleague alike, not giving two shits at their leaders off fucking around on secret missions to parts unknown. Simultaneously, it relies on Euron betting Danny and fucking around in Slaver's Bay when he just got done winning Kingsmute from a notoriously fickle and traitorous people when you'd think he'd be concerned with consolidating his power back on the Iron Islands and ensuring that his people remain loyal. But, as we've seen, there is a lot of evidence to support the theory. In fact, it's very eerie the way Martin has carved out these periods of time over the course of two simultaneously occurring books so the chronologies do not overlap. It's possible that's a coincidence, it's possible that the nods to uh, Book Dario uh, and Book Euron are embodied in show Dario. It's possible this is all a coincidence. It's possible that the showrunners are looking at some of these theories on the internet and just fucking with us. But there is much more there there than initially meets the eye. And, you know, I think it's at least fun to theorize about and fun to think about and I'm going to be adding this to my list of things I'm looking for very closely as we go on how to show Dario behave and how many more qualities of book Euron is he going to embody anyway if you've enjoyed this theory there's actually a video that I just found uh right before I recorded this podcast and doing some research that lays out this theory in about 16 minutes in a very visual uh, visually compelling situation. It's it's a lot more interesting when you can see the two timelines laid out like he does in the video and you can see the gaps matching up. I'll put a link to that because it's a YouTube link. I'll put a, uh, a link to that in my show notes. Uh, if you are curious about this theory at all, I encourage you to take the time to watch that. Uh, if you got any other spoiler feedback for me, suggestions for uh, tinfoil theories of your own, please send those in to Game of Thrones at baldmove.com. Special thanks once again to our sponsor, Audible.com, for allowing us to use uh, samples of their audiobooks to spice up our spoiler theory cast. Again, if you'd like to try a free sample, you can do so at audiblepodcast.com slash GOT to get a free Audible book download. And we'll see you Sunday night for the instant take for uh, episode 505 and Tuesday for the full cast and next Friday for the next spoiler podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Aaron. See you later.